And we began our study of Titus chapter 2. And the opening 10 verses of the chapter allow us to see how our individual testimonies, we talked about this and featured this throughout the sermon last week, how our individual testimonies are a reflection of our corporate testimony as a church. Okay, Who we are in Christ individually reflects who we are in Christ's Corporately, And we will learn that the Apostle Paul was letting Titus know that unlike the false teachers of the day who were teaching that there was no correlation between salvation and how a person lives after salvation, that it simply is not true. The true implications of the gospel need to be understood. A changed heart leads to changed living. And many of the newly converted believers on the island of Crete who had spent their lives thoroughly entrenched in the Cretan culture, which he describes in chapter 1, verse 12, gluttonous, right? Liars, evil beasts. Okay, they were caught up in apathy and gluttony and now needed to be instructed that the testimony of their individual lives and the testimony of the church needs to reflect Christ. So the Holy Spirit first led Paul to record instructions for us in chapter 1 on what godly leadership was supposed to look like. And then he transitions after the opening 10 verses, excuse me, opening 9 verses, starting in verse 10, to talk about these false teachers and the false teaching that was taking place. And now in chapter 2, the emphasis is on godly living for believers in the church. Last week's message was titled, Being Older and Wiser. And we had an opportunity to look at the testimony of older men in the church. Paul says that there are things that are fitting for sound doctrine that are specific to the testimonies of believers in the church. And he started with the testimony of older men in verse 2. And we'll continue with the testimony of older women in verse Three. Well, let's begin our time by reading our passage together. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 again as we continue to develop our context of all that Paul is trying to communicate in this paragraph in, in the Greek. And this is what it says, starting in chapter 2, verse 1 of Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to too much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time as we study His Word. 
Merciful Father, help us to be true disciples and students of your word. We are the recipients of your redemptive grace through the gospel. And you have spiritually called us out. You have called us out of living according to the way of this world, according to the foolishness of this world. And we are so blessed. Our hearts are so encouraged as we consider where and what and who we would be if not for Christ and the gospel. We rejoice in you. We praise you for the name above all names. We praise you for the righteousness that comes through Christ that could never be obtained through merit, through any effort. But it is truly a gift of your grace. And as we understand the gospel, as we meditate on it, there's implications for how we live. And I pray, Father, that you would use me this day to be an effective instrument to communicate what your word is teaching us. I pray for every heart, every uh, set of ears that can hear the sound of your word being taught that we would be receptive to it and that we would grow as a result, that we would see with greater depth and clarity that which you have for us. We commit all of our time to you, asking you to bless it in that precious name of Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, the message is this, uh, the title of the message is the same, being older and wiser, and this will actually be part two. I did intend to preach that message last week in one message, but it proved to be too much. And so we're going to focus on the testimony of older women in the church. And we're going to give all of our attention to verse 3 today. Excuse me. The sermon proposition should sound familiar. The strength of your personal testimony has a direct impact and reflects the corporate uh, testimony or strength of our corporate testimony as a church. And last week I qualified the word testimony by sharing that it's a reference to the ongoing work of God in our lives. The, the, the continued work of how God is growing us in our understanding of Him as He's growing us as a disciple. Not just specific to our testimony of salvation. God wants you and I to see that our individual ongoing testimonies directly impact the testimony of our church. And He receives glory through both, as I mentioned last week, both individually and corporately. We are believers living in Orange County, California, in the year 2014. And these words that Paul wrote some 2,000 years ago will help our testimonies to be strengthened to give him glory he so richly deserves in our homes, in our workplace, in our schools, wherever we might be. The bulletin indicates our focus, the testimony of older women. And verse 3 reads as follows. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. After speaking about the testimony of older men, Paul now quickly transitions to speak to older women. And as we learned last week in our study of older men... There's really no way for us to know the specific age that Paul was talking about here. And the same is going to be true as we start our focus on older women. We have no idea the exact age. We talked about the tradition that took 
place through Hippocrates, the Greek physician who said that uh, used the same word in the sixth stage of life, um, referencing somebody that might be close to their 60s, but we, we simply do not know. And I think God in his wisdom knew that through, throughout cultures, throughout countries, ages were going to vary, right? And so if he were to put specific numbers in place here over the course of time, when we see people in the scriptures who lived for a long, long time, and we also see in some third world countries, <clears throat> excuse me today, people who don't live very long, it makes sense that there is no specific age. But we do know that they were people who had life experience. And as we're going to learn next week when we get to verses 4 and 5, we're going to see that there were people, uh, these ladies were old enough to be able to uh, counsel and disciple and to shepherd women who already had children, who were already married, and they were able to pour into their lives. Well, We saw last week that there were four testimonies of character that should be reflected with the older men, that they're to be temperate, that they're to be dignified, that they're to be sensible. And then in the last part, it it said that they're to be sound, which actually means healthy, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. And now today in in verse three, we're actually going to see four different testimonies that are fitting or reflective of sound doctrine and the gospel for the ladies. The first testimony or characteristic that Paul shares is this. Godly older women are to be reverent. Should be a space in letter A for you under the second point to, to write that in. Godly older women are to be reverent. Reverence is not a word that we hear much anymore. And these words here in our verse are examples of hapax legomena. They're only used here in the New Testament, so there really is no way for us to draw comparisons. Reverent is the adjective describing the word behavior. And there's actually no verb present in this verse, but commentators agree that it's rightly supplied considering the context. The implied state of verb carries over from from verse 2. And the adjective is speaking to that which befits what is sacred to God. And, And again, we can't draw comparisons. All we know is that the noun describes the behavior or demeanor of the person. And borrowing the words of a commentator, he shared this insight that truly reflects our context so well. It describes outward presentation and action, but only as it arises out of an inward state of mind and way of thinking. And this is how Paul is encouraging Titus to shepherd the churches in Crete. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It changes our hearts. God grants us new desires and true motives to live for Him. There are new internal motivations that are producing external realities in the way we live. It changes everything. And Paul in this very short letter is taking the time to help Titus see this so that he can shepherd those in the Cretan churches. And he ironically does the same thing for Timothy in Ephesus. He does the same thing for the Corinthians who were dragging in um, 
the immoral residue of their culture into the church. He does the same thing and provides gospel clarity in Galatia. It's how God used the Apostle Paul in great measure and with great precision in the epistles. And I call it the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law balance. That's mine. but, But that's how I understand it. That's how I see God using the Apostle Paul in great measure. Just like Christ, who had to rebuke the Pharisees, who minister to people through the letter of the law and you need to do, 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 do this in order to be godly, in order to really point people to themselves, to be like me, okay? Jesus had to rebuke them. And the same thing goes on with the Apostle Paul, with these Judaizers now, as he's shepherding these two uh, young protégés that he's pouring into and letting them know that that. It's, it's going to turn legalistic. It's the, the letter of the law. And they're saying you need to do these things. You need to do these things. And we talked about what some of those things were. You're not to eat. Don't eat certain foods. Don't marry this person. We, we talked about those two things specifically because Scripture mentions them. They... Are, the ceremonial laws have been lifted, right? They, they, they've been fulfilled. Righteousness is in Christ. The people could now eat certain foods. They could now marry uh, a, a, a non-Israelite. Okay? And through the fulfillment of the law, guess what we do? We live in what? The spirit of the law. That's, that's it. It's uh, Christ fulfilled all righteousness. It's not about doing. It's about Uh, magnifying his name but there is a conversion that takes place in the human heart that drives us and compels us to honor and magnify him by honoring and living in the spirit of the law and there's a danger from swaying too far one way and going too far the other way and just like the pharisees who go too far to the letter of the law There's opportunities for people to swing the pendulum too far to the spirit of the law. Right? And God is a God of love. And God is a God of grace. Yes, it's true. Right? But he's, he's a God of, he's a God who wants us to have faith. He's, he's our Lord. He is our master. He is the one who, who has called us out to serve him and serve his purposes. And so back in verse 3, here is what Paul is saying. Older women are to have to come to a certain state of mind that is pervasive in all that they do when being reverent in their behavior. The gospel call isn't intended for them to compartmentalize life, but to see each and every part of their day as holy to the Lord. And obviously this takes some maturation and growth. For any believer to come to such a place spiritually, praise God that in due time we can all cherish growing in Christ just like this. What comes to mind when you think of the word reverence? Something. And you don't know. I'll tell you what comes to mind. I think of medieval times. 
I think of a king. I think of the reality of people um, being called to come in and to, to venerate or give honor or show reverence to the king. There was nothing that was more important during medieval times. Nothing. And I think this provides a great picture for us as believers as we consider 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, and I know our First Peter Bible study has recently had an opportunity to talk about those verses on a Thursday night where God has called us out of this world and he says to be holy for I am holy. Just as it is written. Like the Holy One who has called you, verse 15, be holy in all your behavior because it is written. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, how do we apply that practically as believers? I can provide a good place for us to start. And it comes in one sentence and and one phrase of application. Acknowledge the presence of the king. Acknowledge the presence of the king. When I'm spending time in His Word and I'm studying, acknowledge the presence of the King. When I'm having a difficult time in a personal relationship and there's strife and I'm offset with someone and it doesn't look good, acknowledge the presence of the King. When I'm using the Internet, Or maybe you're a man or or a woman that travels for business and you stay in hotels and sometimes you're isolated and you're by yourself and you can seriously be, be tempted, right? Acknowledge the presence of the King. When I'm doing my homework and I'm tempted to cheat and take the easy way out, the path of least resistance, acknowledge the presence of the king when he blesses me with a new job or a new ministry opportunity acknowledge the presence of the king when he answers prayers for us faithfully in providing all that we need acknowledge the presence of the king older godly women in the church serve as great testimonies for us as they acknowledge the presence of the king in all their behavior there is reverence for god that flows from the inside out and I'll just say, Martha, it is so sweet to have you here. You, you served as an example to me as you read your Bible faithfully, as you were in your room, as you, as you prayed. And I was so blessed as a man who was pursuing God and studying for seminary. You, you, you truly just blessed me. And I saw your reverence for God over the course of those five years. Well, there's a second testimony that describes godly older women that flows out of their reverence for God through a gospel-converted heart, and it's this. They are controlled with their speech. Verse 3 continues. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. The Greek word translated malicious gossips can be rendered more literally devils. That's what it's saying. The masculine singular form of this word always is used to describe the devil himself. Diabolos. And one commentator suggests that the more literal translation could actually read she-devils. 
And the word means slander, and it's the same word used in 1 Timothy 3.11 that requires wives of deacons not to be malicious gossips. And the masculine plural form is used in 2 Timothy 3.3 to describe what's going to be true of men and women in the last days. Jesus told the unbelieving Jews in John 8.44, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Whenever he speaks... A lie he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In Revelation 12.10, Satan is called the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. And one commentator said this, those who in a like fashion, referencing Satan, falsely accuse and slander others are operating in the devil's realm and advancing his cause. It is sad how often conversation in Christian circles can slip into such talk. You may find this fascinating. I did. How many words on average do do you think uh, the average person speaks over the course of a day? Any guesses out there? Maybe somebody knows. Well, it's different for the guys and the girls. Can I just qualify that right up front? It is. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's significantly different, okay? The average guy speaks about 6,073 words per day, which equates to a rough estimate of about 160 million words over the course of an average lifetime. Females? 8,805 words per day, or roughly 240 million words over the course of an average lifetime. Women, on average, speak 30% more than men. And all the men in the room said, we know this, okay? (laughs) We know this. It's true. Women talk more than men. And this isn't always the case, but Proverbially, I, I, proverbially speaking, it's a general truth. And God wired us all to be social creatures, but he, he added just a little bit more social seasoning and the genetic makeup of women, okay? He did. And considering how much both men and women talk, there's a proverb that serves us well, both genders very well. Proverbs 10:19. When there are many words... You can turn there, Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. I want us to reflect on this proverb for just a moment and answer the question, why is this proverb so true? Important to know. Where words are many, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Why is that true? This is going to assist our understanding of godly mature women in, in Titus 2.3. This proverb reveals the propensity of our human hearts to be critical and slanderous of others. This is, it does. Listen, when we talk a a lot, and especially if the discussions are moved towards other people, our propensity to sin is greatly amplified. And so we need to be on spiritual alert. In our flesh, we don't naturally say edifying, complimentary, or encouraging words. We don't. It's typically opposite. 
And one pastor shared this insight, just as men are more inclined to abuse others physically, women are more inclined to abuse others verbally, which has the potential of being even more destructive, end quote. Do you recognize within yourself the propensity of your own heart to malign or be malicious in your conversation towards other people? I know my own heart. It's pathetic at times. It truly is. I can be so cynical. That's a very fitting word for our application. Sin, S-I-N. Cynical, right? Pointing the conversation towards self and self-promotion and talking critically or maybe it's how if I would have done it this way it would have worked out a little bit better. To slander someone is to literally cut them down or slice them up with words. It is satanic at the core. And this is why the second half of Proverbs 10.19 is so important. And it's a true marker of those who are spiritually wise and mature. But he who restrains his lips is wise. As we mature in Christ, as we meditate on the gospel as we understand that God has saved us from malicious gossip and is bringing us to a place of controlled speech, there's something that we need to know. It it happens through maturation. We, We grow. We're able to do that. And the Apostle James describes the tongue in James 3, 7, and 8 this way when he wrote, For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race but no one can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison one theologian called the tongue the little red devil living inside our mouths and gossip was as common in paul's day as it is in our day to spread rumors about people to say unkind things about them to damage their reputation And no such speech is to be heard on the lips of an older Christian woman. Godly older women are to be testimonies within the church by their controlled speech, which stands in stark contrast to the Antichrist malicious gossip that is so prevalent in our culture. And I believe what really is the marker of their maturity isn't so much that they're they're growing um, in their ability... Uh, necessarily not to engage in it. But the marker of their maturity is the recognition of the own human heart and the propensity of their, th- themselves to actually be enticed and how easy it is to enter into such conversations. And this is why older godly women will not participate There are women who aren't even going to listen to it or engage in it and will sound the alarm for those who choose to participate. And so it's a fair question. How do you respond? How do you and I respond if somebody starts to gossip? Do you you have a plan? Do you know I want to be a help? And Ken Sandy, who wrote the book Peacemakers, had this to share on his blog. He says that, Believers should always be ready to ask three simple questions, and I want to give them to you. He says, if someone begins to share confidential or unfavorable information or opinions about another person, 
and you are not part of the problem or its solution, simply interrupt and ask, may I quote you when I talk with him or her about this? That works. Thank you, Ken Sandy. Could we go to him or her together to talk about this? Or a third question you can ask, instead of talking about him or her, could we pray for him or her right now? Great questions. Wise words from a wise man who loves the Lord and wants to help other believers honor Christ with their testimonies. And he goes on to say questions like these can quickly expose the motives behind others' words. They can shield your ears from words that may poison your heart against another person. They will sometimes convert worthless talk into constructive action. Good, good stuff from Mr. Sandy. Well, remember the strength of your personal testimony has a direct impact on the personal testimony of our church. And if I can just be candid, gossip has burned churches to the ground. In James 3, it's so fitting to talk about the spark of gossip and the the flame that can ignite. And gossip can burn this church to the ground. It can. And it breaks God's heart. It, 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 It grieves God's heart so much to see any any malicious talk. It doesn't mean that you can't provide feedback. It doesn't mean that you can't even provide constructive criticism. I've even asked for that, just even as it's related to to my preaching, right? I I want people to say, I really wish, you know, Pastor John, you would um, do this, or you would help us go this. I mean, I've been blessed by a lot of feedback. There's a place for it. And when it's not with malicious intent, it's called it's called constructive criticism. But when it maligns, when it cuts someone up or cuts them down, that's where there's a problem. And older, mature, godly women are a testimony and we can look to them as testimonies of how we are supposed to be controlled in our speech. Well, there's a third testimony that the Apostle Paul encourages Titus to share. And it's this. Older women are to be sober examples. Verse 3 continues. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. People on the island of Crete, again, were notorious for gluttony. And this also involved their use of alcohol. And like many in our culture today who turn to alcohol as a means to cope with life's pains and problems, the same was true in the Cretan culture. And this Greek word translated enslaved is used throughout the the New Testament and it has um, different uses. One is to speak to actual, actual slavery itself. And it's also used metaphorically to describe um, in a negative way uh, a believer's enslavement to sin. But there's also a positive use of it as well when it talks about our enslavement to God, like in Romans 6.22. 
Well, here the Holy Spirit led Paul to use it in the negative sense. And the verb is in the perfect tense, so it lets us know that it's pointing to something that has taken place in the past and continues to be true in the present. And it's in the passive voice, and that's how we know for sure that it's talking about a negative form of bondage here. And this isn't an absolute prohibition in this verse against consuming alcohol, although the wider context may make that the wiser course. Here's a study that I found really interesting. College campuses are often known for free-flowing alcohol. The average college student drinks 34 gallons of alcoholic beverages a year. A new report from Columbia University Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse revealed two very interesting trends. Trend number one, freshmen consume the most alcohol per week. Sophomores are next, juniors rank third, and seniors consume the least alcohol per week. Trend number two, grade point averages showed the same hierarchy of ranking. A students drink the least, B students rank second, C students consume more alcohol per week, and D and F students down the most. Does this mean the more mature and educated you become, the less you use alcohol. These two trends appear to suggest that this is the case, end quote. Even the world recognizes the negative impact that alcohol has in a person's life. How much more so for the Christian who has been saved out of this world, that that, that we would see the danger. And Paul's point to Titus through the testimonies of these older women in the church is this, as Christians mature... Not only are they not going to engage in gossip, but they're not going to overindulge in the use of alcohol. And it's been speculated that the union of these two negative uh, negatives even suggests a close connection between a loose tongue and alcohol. Alcohol in excess impairs judgment. And as we learned under our last point, that we don't need alcohol because we're already impaired in our judgment just as it relates to our speech. It's a recipe for disaster to add alcohol into the equation. It only makes us more foolish than we're already prone to be in our flesh. Godly, older women in the church serve as testimonies and examples of being freed from both of these things. And their spiritual growth in Christ has allowed them to see that these things are truly a waste of time. And that's what the scripture has to teach us in Ephesians 5.18, which commands us not to get drunk for its dissipation. It is a, it's a, it's a waste of your time. It's a, it's a waste of an opportunity for, for you to be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the significance and we all know the dangers. I mean, we've heard it countless times about the, the hazards of drinking and driving, okay, which is very dangerous. But can I just say this? Drinking and dissipating is, is greatly hazardous for the believer. It is. Our testimonies need to be guarded. Godly older women in the church can serve as great testimonies in this regard. 
They are to be reverent in their behavior, controlled in their speech, sober in their examples. And verse 3 offers a fourth and final testimony. Godly older women are to be good disciplers. Godly older women are to be good disciplers. This is verse 3. Older women likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. And our verse finishes with teaching what is good. After two negative descriptions, Paul now turns to a positive one and says teaching what is good. And this is another example of hapax legomena, which actually is a compound word. Use It's really good teaching, okay? It gets translated teaching what is good, and we don't have another example to draw a comparison. But the context shows that this isn't referring to an official teaching position in the church, but rather to informal life-on-life discipleship. It pictures the older women, those who were experienced in life, in marriage, in child-rearing, taking younger women in the congregation and helping them understand their roles and their responsibilities. And here's a strong comment made by a commentator. Older women are always to have others on their mind, seeking to pass on what is virtuous, right, and good to a younger generation of women. They live not for themselves, but for others and the next generation of women. End quote. Strong And this is a great ministry need within the church. And frankly, it's one that men cannot fulfill. They really, they really can't. It's, it's specific. Ladies helping ladies. And I would guess that just about every Christian woman, young Christian woman in this room has been blessed at one point in time by being shepherded or guided in being married or being a parent by an older, wiser, Christian woman. I've shared this before and it bears repeating because it will be new for some. But those who have been here for the past several months have heard me say this before. There are two aspects to discipleship. Okay, It is being a follower and being a learner. Right? We're a follower of Christ and a learner of Christ. And Christ uses those exact expressions throughout the Gospels. Follow me. Learn from me. He shares those and says those words specifically. And so that is what qualifies a person as a disciple of Christ. You're a follower and a learner. To be a disciple maker is different it is, well, it's actually progress in, in, in your discipleship. When a person spiritually grows from being a disciple to being a disciple maker, they become something else. And it's by implication that we see this. You're, you're not just a follower and a learner, but you, you're transitioning in your spiritual growth to become a leader and a teacher. Those two things. That's what it means to be a disciple maker. You are a leader and a teacher. And so what happens is that as we grow spiritually, we're developing our capacity to be used effectively by God in those two areas. And you might say, well, 
do I go to seminary for that? No. Do you need an advanced Bible degree for that? No. Is there something, is it only reserved for those who have the spiritual gift of teaching? No. It involves spiritual growth. It involves thinking about yourself correctly, about who you are in Christ. And the clarion call of the gospel, which is to be a disciple maker. Not just a disciple. To make disciples. And so, well, how do I know in terms of leadership? What, what does that look like? How do I know in terms of teaching? What do I teach? I, I, I want to make this as simple as I possibly can because discipleship has made, been made so complicated and I'm so grateful that Pastor Kurt Gebhardt is going to come and teach the entire weekend on the retreat and if you're not going on the retreat, you're really going to miss out. Sign up. It's not too late. We want you to go. You'll be so blessed because it's this. It's leading by example. That's what it is. It's leading by example in the Christian life. And then it is teaching others what you are learning about God and about your spiritual walk. That's it. It's not, it's not complicated. It really isn't. That's it. We, we want to be a leader and a teacher of others. And to, to do that, there's, there's maturation that takes place. And we see glimpses. And you're like, well, where does, it, where does it have to take place? It can take place in ministries of the church, through children's ministries that's going on right now on the other side of this wall. It can take place in care group or a small group dynamic. It can take place in one-on-one discipleship relationships. There's no limit. And it looks different. Discipleship looks different in di- different places. And it really is unlimited. Why? Because you can be anywhere and you can lead someone to follow your example um, and, and any, it's not about atmosphere. Okay. It's about, um, being who you're supposed to be in Christ. Okay. Being a light that shines before people. And then it's about teaching them what you're learning and what you're studying. And this is exactly what is being encouraged in t- Titus chapter two as older men last week. This is exactly what's going on as they lead by example that they're to be temperate, that they're to be dignified, that they're to be sensible, that they're to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. They're they're, they're leading by example. They're living a life and discipling younger men by how they live by leading by example. And then that comes with instruction. And we didn't see it last week with the men, but we see it this week with the ladies because it's going to happen for us in verses 4 and 5. But women are called to live by example, to be reverent in all their behavior, to be controlled with their speech, to be sober examples, and then to teach what is good. And next week we're going to have the opportunity when we open up God's Word um, not next week, because Peter Smith is preaching next week. And the following week, we'll have the opportunity to open up and talk about God's Word in verses 4 and 5, and specifically what older women will teach their husbands to, 
to love their children, to love their husbands, to be sensible, pure workers at home, to be kind, to be subject to one another, right? So that the word of God will not be dishonored and we'll have a chance to break that down. I hope you're blessed. I hope God uses this to encourage you as a disciple and helps you as you think about these things, as you meditate about your, your spiritual growth and maturity, as we even just look to the examples of older women, what discipleship is supposed to look like. We're going to talk about perseverance in those things, uh, second hour. Perseverance, the spiritual discipline of perseverance, second hour. But... Um, We'll close our time. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the opportunity that we've just been given to um, open up a service through the reading of your word to pray and to give you thanks for just the unfathomable riches that come through Christ. So many things. And yet, in our finite thinking and really in our distorted thinking, we can lose sight of the very purpose for which you've called us. And you have called us to be Disciple makers, you have called us to be progressing in evangelism and discipleship, just as the ministry pillar of our church shares. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be encouraged greatly by what we've seen in Titus 2 and how you are faithful to grow those who are older than we are, to bring them to a place of maturity, to allow them to use their life experience and the collection of their experiences and knowledge to bless us and to pour into us. I pray selfishly, Father, that you would bring not just more younger people to our church, but even more older people to our church. People that we can continue to glean from and understand and to follow them as they follow Christ. As they live lives that are truly converted they're truly born again. And I pray, Father, even in this moment, that if there is someone here today that has yet to trust in you, that if there is someone here that does not know you and have a personal relationship with you through Christ, that they would see their need. That today is the day of salvation and that you would call them to repent that you would help them to see their need for the perfect righteousness of Christ that can never be obtained by human merit, can never be earned, we can never be good enough. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and this is the fellowship that we share, that is in Him, that we all fall short, but He did not. That's why we come week after week to hear from Him, to praise Him, to learn from him and to follow him so that we can in turn lead others and teach others to do the same. Thank you again, Father, for this time. We look forward to our fellowship that's going to take place right after it. We ask that you'll bless our equipping hour as we study what it means to persevere as a Christian. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.